Are you a woman who has struggled with the secret shame that goes with viewing pornography and other sexual sin? Are you tired of fighting the same battle and making the same promises to the Lord only to continue to find yourself committing the same sexual sins over and over? My name is Kim and I have good news for you. No matter how long you've struggled, there is hope for you. You can be free to experience the abundant life Jesus came to give you. I struggled in the darkness of sexual addiction for 23 years and now walk in freedom. I wrote 40 Days of Purity for Women with you in mind. If you are ready to take a step of faith, this course, I believe, could be your catapult to the purity your heart longs for. To register for the 40 Days of Purity for Women course, go to purelifeacademy.org and click on the Women link. That's purelifeacademy.org. Good day, listeners. Welcome to this edition of the program. We're glad to have you with us. My name is Jonathan, and I have a special guest on the line with me. I've got Janet Boynes. And so, Janet, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me, Jonathan. Now, Janet, if I, if I remember correctly from our, our phone call we had a couple of weeks ago, you had you originally, or for a long time, you've been living up north, but now you're down in the great state of Texas, right? You're, you're in the Fort Worth area. Is that right? Yes, that is so true. I am so, here in Texas. We like to say here in Texas, you know, you've reached the promised land, you know, so there's, <laughs> there is that thing like Texas pride here. But uh, anyway, I, we're, I'm really excited to have you on the program because, um, you know, we love to hear God's redemptive uh, work in people's lives. And I think you have a really powerful story that I think will benefit a lot of our listeners. And I would love for our listeners to get to know you a little bit. And so why don't you share us with us a little bit of your, your story, and then we can, we can look at some things that God has led you into out of that mm -hmm. uh, yes. in ministry. So, so tell us kind of your background. You know, unfortunately, I was raised in a, a family of seven kids, four different fathers. And that was difficult for me because at one time I thought, you know, a certain guy was my dad and here, you know, I'm at this parade you know, downtown in Arstown, Pennsylvania. And this man comes up to me and says, Hey, I'm your dad. Mm -hmm. And I look at my brother who is now deceased. And I'll talk about him in a little bit. Who is this man? And he said, ask him. He said, I'm your father. So, you know, I run home and I start talking with my mom about it. My stepfather, they finally told me the truth, but can you imagine mm -hmm. being raised in a family of seven kids, four different fathers, assuming for so many years up until the age of 13, that this man was your father and here he wasn't your dad. And deception and had already entered in because the father that was raising me, even though he fathered the three under me, because I'm the middle child, he was an alcoholic. And there was a lot of abuse in my home, which I call intense fellowship. My mom and my father always fought all the time. And that was devastating for us. And to add something to the wound, I used to follow my oldest sister to her biological father's home. And that was the man my mother was married to, but never divorced at that time. And one time he sent, we went there and he sent my oldest sister to the store, my youngest sister, and he kept me behind and he molested me. He raped me. And from that day forward, I never trusted men. 
And then mm -hmm. I really had a hard time trusting men because I associated men with abuse and rape because my stepfather would always beat my mother up and knock her down steps and she always had bruises. But when you see something like that in the home, you assume that's how you're supposed to be treated or that's how you are to treat someone. So I thought, you know, what I was doing was right. I go to school and beat all, all the kids in this school. And my life at that moment, Jonathan, was being shaped by my early experiences. What people don't realize is that that trauma that we experience has a big impact on how we live out our lives. Not that it can't change because we know that, you know, my life has changed since then. But during that time, I never thought that I would, one, go into the life of homosexuality. However, I was starting to act out or put into corresponding action what I saw at home. So now, um, my goodness, and just that those few sentences, you have unpa you've unpacked a ton of, there's chaos, there's confusion, there's, uh, you know, abuse, trauma. Now, as a young girl, where were you trying to gain any point of reference for being able to understand all these things that were going on? I mean, who, was there anyone you could talk with, a sibling, a friend? Like, how did you even try to process that as a little girl going through all of those experiences? How do you process something? Um, and, and I'm asking the question with a question. When you have a mother, and my mother just passed, so I'm hoping I don't cry in February, but um, how do you try to gain access or how do you try to gain understanding with a parent who is one illiterate, mm -hmm. who was raised in a family that had 12 siblings? I didn't like my grandmama at that time because even though I didn't understand, I know today that my mother was impacted by what she did to us. The whipping stem with stension cords, but naked you know, hit in front of our friends, embarrassed in front of our friends. Obviously, my mother inherited that some of that same behavior that was done to her as a child. So we really didn't have anybody to really go to and sit down and talk to. You don't, in the Black community, you don't do as I do. You do as I say do. And, you know, our parents had no problem with, you know, using the rod and using it fiercely. So there was a healthy fear of my mother in our, in our household. But because I was an athlete and I played basketball, at the age of 13, my eighth grade English teacher happened to come into my life at that time. So my mother allowed me to talk with her. And I did talk with her, but not always about what was happening in our home. Because number one, I was afraid that if it got out, that we were being physically abused, my mother would be arrested or two, nobody would really believe us. And if it got back to my mother, I was dead. I was dead. So we really didn't have anybody. So what happens there is I started acting out in school and getting kicked out of school all the time, but everybody thought I was a bad kid. Wasn't a bad kid, Jonathan. To your listeners, I wasn't a bad kid. Bad things were happening to me behind the scenes. And so I started during that time, a lot of people, because I was a great athlete, started saying back in my era, you know, I'm 62 years old, that I was going to be a lesbian. I was going to be gay. And during my high school or junior high school years, that's when my brother, my next to the oldest brother, came out as, as gay. He told my mother he was Robert during the day, but he was Barbara at night. And that's how I really had a better understanding of homosexuality because my brother was gay at that time. I wasn't. I was just enjoying life as a child. So, so when, when your brother came out, uh, was that the first time that you maybe started to introduce or, or think about those thoughts for yourself? Or had you had thoughts about that before? Honestly, I didn't. 
where I wind up having the association with lesbians is I had a neighbor down the street who was a lesbian. She was one of my best friends. And my mother used to say, you better not become like her ever. And so I had a healthy fear. My brother was kicked out of the house, even though he was allowed back into the home. He continued living a homosexual life. But one thing I could say about my brother, Robert, who is now gone in 1999, is that he never brought that into the home. He never told my mom, you either accept me or you're gone. He had that much respect for us siblings. We never saw him um, transition from a male to a female or vice or back to a male. He did all his, you know, sinful duties in the evening and we never saw that. But for me, my grandma used to say to me, what are you going to be a whack, Janet? What are you going to go in the army and become a lesbian or gay person? Because I was very involved in, um, in my athletic abilities, which I was very good at. Mm-hmm. Now, you mentioned something a minute ago about how, you know, you weren't a bad kid. A lot of bad things were happening to you. Um, you know, I think of it a lot of times we, we misplace particular, uh, if I can put it this way, blame onto a victim that's really meant to be onto a perpetrator or an abuser. And how, how prevalent do you think this is uh, maybe not just in the black community, but in 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 general, in terms of a lot of what we see and maybe kids acting out, it's really more of a response to what's being done to them and they don't know how to process it. Do you see a lot of that in our culture today? Jonathan, I do because I work with so many families around the country that contact our ministry. Right now, I'm overwhelmed with how many parents are contacting our ministry that a 12-year-old is just on the phone Sunday evening. I mean, I have so much passion for this. I can't even wait a day when somebody contacts my ministry. It's like, I want to help them right away or at least, you know, help them or get them on the right track. But yes, because you see a child have so much traumatic experiences, like the family I was just talking with, mom was alcoholic on her fourth marriage, boyfriend was an alcoholic. And here this child, the mother's given more attention to this this spouse or this boyfriend than they are to the child. So they're looking to to get the love and attention that nurturing from their mother and they're not getting it. A lot of times we go out, once we hear about homosexuality and we know that women are nurturing, we go look for it sometimes in somebody else that might look like us, maybe not, you know, color wise, but just gender wise. And Mm -hmm. I think that's what's happening around the country. And that's what happened for me. Now you think about this and the statistics has changed. There's over 85% of women that are living a homosexual life have been molested. Now with our, with the men, the statistics as far as pornography and homosexuality, as you well know, are getting higher as far as rape, those that are going into that life. Just think about the impact that this would have on somebody such as myself or, you know, people that we're working with and that we're, we're trying to help. One thing I can say about this, I made a vow. And I want to say this to your listeners when I was growing up and you know, a vow can really impact you because you don't really deviate from that. I made a vow that, that this, um, I would never get married. I would never marry a black man because I associated black men with abuse and rape, but I will never, if I ever have kids, allow them to go through what I went through. Mm-hmm. And that vow not only impacted my relationship with the opposite sex, but it, it impacted my relationship with God in so many different ways. So tell us what happened, like, let's say after you, 
you know, get through your teenage years and then maybe get out on your own? What did, what did life look like for you as you sort of launched into adulthood? Well, believe it or not, I did go to my senior prom, you know, because I was very much interested in men. I was feminine, but also enjoyed sports. But a lot of women, because I wasn't as feminine as them, um, didn't really treat me um, very well. You know, they had their only little cliques. And unless you were, you know, part of that era, that group, I may say, I didn't fit in. So I always look for people that would accept me. And I think that's what a lot of people do today. They look for somebody that's going to accept them into the group. And when I moved from Narstown, Pennsylvania to Minneapolis, Minnesota in 1979, I went to Concordia College. And that's where I started thinking that, you know, I wanted to be a lesbian. And it didn't happen right away because I wind up getting saved. In 1980, some girl at my school came up to me and invited me to church, and I went and got saved. And so I gave my heart to the Lord in 1980. I met this wonderful guy who was a professional bike racer for an organization called Flanders Brothers, and he was a drummer. And he was Caucasian because, remember, I said I'll never marry a black man. So Lauren and I dated. He courted me for three years, asked me to marry him, and my family was very excited about it. However, he was on the road a lot. And there was a woman at my job whose father was a pastor in St. Paul, Minnesota. And I worked for Control Data at that time. And we spent a lot of time together. She was one of my friends. What I didn't realize is that she was a lesbian in the closet. I wound up hanging out with her, spending too much time at her home, spent the night one night, and we wind up getting into a physical and sexual relationship. Three months before I was supposed to walk down the aisle, I called my wedding off. I went and told my pastor at the Assemblies of God Church in St. Paul, Minnesota. And he told me three things because he was working with me for marriage. We were in marriage counseling. He said three things, call up your wedding, tell your fiance and get some help. I did two of the three. I told my fiance, I called up my wedding and I walked away from the Lord. Mm-hmm. So that's another obviously pivotal moment in your life, right? Because that's right. Uh, I mean, that's a, that's a huge left turn. Like, um, mm-hmm. so what happened at that point in you emotionally, you know, obviously spiritually you're saying I'm, I'm walking away from the Lord. And, and so how long did this relationship go on or where did things go from there as far as just going into those desires and those, those urges? I think the impact that it had not only on me, but on my fiance was devastating, but also my family because everybody was set to come to my wedding. I was set. I had my dress and everything. Three months, 1985. I'm supposed to walk down the aisle and and take on this last name. And I walked away from my faith and got involved with this woman. But what I noticed about the relationship with a woman is that I felt that it was real. It seems as though finally somebody's given me the love and the attention that I so much desired. I didn't get that from my mother. You have to understand, there were seven kids. I was the middle child. And I didn't get the, the affection that I needed. And this woman was willing to give me that. She spent time with me. She talked with me on the phone. I mean, we were together. And when you have a sexual relationship with somebody, I don't care if it's homosexual or heterosexual, you feel like you become one with them. And the relationship took off. However. I think it lasted like two or three years and then we broke up and I went on to another relationship. The sad thing is that my fiance still tried to get my relationship back and I wasn't interested because my heart was somewhere else. 
And so walking away from my faith for that long and getting involved with a female, I really thought it was the right thing to do. I thought that after talking with a priest in Minnesota and getting counseling, he told me that what I was doing was okay. It was a Catholic priest and that I would go to heaven even if I was living a homosexual life. And I asked him about transitioning because I was the more dominant person. And he told me it was okay. And I thank God I never did it, but I almost transitioned back then because we talked about it, but it wasn't as prevalent as it is today. Yeah, so let's talk about that for a second. We're talking about the, the mid to late 80s, right? Um, right. There was still pretty much a, a predominant traditional family value throughout mm-hmm. the United States. Absolutely. Um, and, and would you say that that certainly was true within the black community too? Um, what was this like for you in terms of, uh, it didn't sound like this relationship was private. It didn't sound like you were, you were living this lifestyle in a closet or were you? Mm-hmm. No, I wasn't closeted. Um, a lot of people knew that I walked away from my faith in the black community we don't do things as our friends in the Caucasian community. In the Black community, one, is closeted more, you know? And if your family knows about it, it's hit under the carpet. It's like, we're not going to talk about this. We just become oblivious. Let's just pretend it's not there. We're not going to talk about it. And now with a lot of my friends that are, you know, Caucasian, they're getting kicked out of house, they're taken out of will, they're thrown into treatment. But you have to understand the Black community doesn't have them type of finances either. You know, the, you know, we're not making that kind of money. I grew up on welfare. I grew up with roaches. I grew up with mice running around the house. So we didn't really have, you know, what a lot of, you know, my white friends might have had and we could not afford counseling. So a lot of that was hidden. I wasn't even taken to church to talk about it with my pastor because I was raised in Episcopalian church, but neither here nor there, my family accepted me. My family accepted my brother. I was allowed to bring my girlfriends home. You know, now was my mother happy when I came out? Absolutely. My mother's biggest fear is that somebody would kill me because of my stance on against homosexuality. And she always wanted me to be careful. But in the black community, they supported a lot more than they did in the white community. Yeah. So, so obviously you're, you're now not living that lifestyle. Tell us what the journey was like to, and, and and I would really like to know, like, what was, in hindsight, where do you see the Lord in all of this? Mm-hmm. Like, what was the journey like for you to eventually be where you are now, where you're on the opposite side of this equation? If I can put it this way, out of even respectfully, the Lord was a pain when I walked away. I mean, when you talk about if there's a hundred sheep and one go to sh- go astray, oh, trust me, he comes after you. The Lord does everything he can to woo you. I used to shake my hand at him, Jonathan, and say, leave me alone. You see what happened? It's because of you. Now I don't have a relationship again. I know it's you. I know you're doing this to me. And I would shake my fist at the Lord all the time. I would run into a track that ministered to me. I would see somebody walking down the street with a Bible. It's like he would always bring these back to my memory. I could hear him. I could hear that still small voice. So what the Lord wind up doing is I would go to bed at night. And I would surf the channel when my girlfriend was asleep. And I would always wind up on the same channel as this guy with a mullet. And he would talk about how God loved me. And I would stay on that channel. And then I hurry up and switch the channel. Like, I don't want to hear this, you know? And then I would go back. And then the next Sunday, I would hear this guy again. It was like, 
who is this guy? Well, I find out today, one day he said, look, there's somebody out there that is struggling. I want you to know God loves you. Nothing you have done is too great for God. You need to come back to the Lord. And it was Joel Osteen. And it was amazing because weeks later, I had my own, um, my own uh, cleaning business. And Lifetime Fitness in, in Minnesota was one of my large clients. I went to the store. We did all the work late at night, Jonathan. I went to the store at three o'clock in the morning. I had five staff people, five or seven. And I said, I'll be right back. Jonathan, once I got off of drugs in 1989, I never went out at three o'clock in the morning unless it was to work. While I drove to the store, there was a woman with all these groceries coming out and I was going in. And we stopped and I said, ma'am, are you kidding me? You're out here three o'clock in the morning with all those groceries, you can get robbed. You know, I'm that type of person. I don't have a problem with talking to people. And she said, no, I just dropped my son off at school. I said, ma'am, you don't have to lie to me. No school's open three o'clock in the morning. She said, no, it was, it's a college. It's called North Central Bible College. My husband and I are going on vacation. And so we wanted to get groceries for our boys. Well, the wheels started turning because before I walked away from my faith, I went to North Central and took homiletics and hermeneutics. And so we engaged in a conversation and I told her I was a lesbian that I walked away from my faith. Now, let me share this five years prior to talking with this woman. I lived down the street from the church that she gave me a brochure to. And the Lord used to tell me I was going to go to that church. And I used to tell that to my girlfriend all the time. I kept saying, I'm going to go to that church one day and I'm going to write a book. And she would go, where's that coming from? I go, I don't know. What are you talking about? You know, well, Tammy Brown went to Maple Grove Assemblies of God. She pulled out a brochure and said, why don't you come to church? She wrote a phone number on it. It was the church that the Lord said I would go to. Two weeks later, I went to church and rededicated my heart to the Lord in 1998. So then what did the journey look like from them? Because obviously there's a lot of things hard. that have to change. I mean, you're in a relationship at that point, right? So right. what did all of that look like? Uh, you know, I think, and, and the way I want to kind of preface this is I think some people, when they hear what we might call this, you know, radical transition or radical transformation that God does in a person's life, uh, especially when we're talking about coming out of the homosexual lifestyle and, and returning to the Lord or, or seeking to live according to God's design. Right. I think so many times, uh, one, there's a lot of people that have a lot of skepticism around whether that transformation can actually happen. Mm -hmm. But two, I think a lot of people think, oh, you just got sort of sprayed with godly pixie dust or something and magically it just all changed. And it's like, yeah. I think people need to hear that yeah. God's, you know, God's way of doing things does not mean there's not difficulty, effort, there's not, you know, hard moments and hard seasons. So tell us what that looked like for you in that season of life. You know, Jonathan, I always say to people, sin will take you further than you want to go and keep you longer than you want to stay. You see, I never intended to live a homosexual life for 14 years. A drug addict never intends to snort cocaine or uh, alcoholic never you know, intends to drink one time and become an addict. Mm -hmm. I never intended that, but it was the church that helped bring my search to an end. God used that church to help me to find my way back to him. What I liked about that church is they didn't judge me. They knew I was a lesbian. They knew I didn't walk like them, talk like them, or even look like them. I was not feminine at all. I looked just like a man. 
but they embraced me. And when Tammy called me weeks later and said, look, Janet, there's a Bible study in the pastor's office. Would you like to attend? Well, I was stupid at that time. I said, yes. I didn't know I was going to walk into a Bible study two weeks later with women that didn't look like me. They had their hair done. They had Louis Vuittons. They had their nails done. I didn't look anything like this. When I was about to walk into that women's meeting, Jonathan, I tried to backpedal and my feet would not move. I felt like I was in cement. I could move forward, but I could not move backwards. And so when I got into the meeting and we engaged in a conversation, obviously they knew I was coming. They didn't know I was coming, but they knew that it was a possibility that I could come. And we did a round table and they asked me my name and I said, my name is Janet. But if you help me, I promise you, I will not walk away. I will serve the God the rest of my life. And that's what they did. They didn't try to change me from the outside in. They allowed the Holy Spirit to change me from the inside out because that's where the change happens. Mm -hmm. We have to understand that there's people that are suffering in silence and they needed to allow God to do what he does best. And what they did was they loved on me. They were there for me eight weeks later, eight months later. Julie came to me, one of the leaders of the group, and said, look, you are still living with this woman. You're going to have to make a decision if you're going to serve God or you're not going to serve God. But if you continue living with this woman, you're not going to be able to continue to move forward. Something is going to pull you back. She said, look, we've been praying. My family would love to take you in for a year. My girlfriend moved out. I sold my home and I moved in with the Christian family for a year. And that's where the real change begun. They helped me. Well, I'm ready to cry. I always get to this part. Because number one, it was a Caucasian family. Mm -hmm. And so God doesn't discriminate. He knew what I needed at that time. They took me in. They loved me. I learned how a man should treat a woman. And what's more importantly, I learned what it was like to have a family. Something I never had. Something that I desired. You know, I didn't understand being close to a sibling. So their kids became like my little brothers and sisters. During that time living there with that family, I received a knock on the door. And when Julie came to me, she said, you have an emergency phone call. During that time, my brother that was living a homosexual life was incarcerated. He was rushed to the hospital. My brother had the virus 10 years before that. I wound up losing my brother to AIDS in 1999. You see, there's consequences to our sin. There's consequences to my sin. I'm a single woman at 62. I'm not saying I'm paying a price and for whatever reason, I'm not married. But that too was a process. I didn't look this good, you know, back then. This was a process. They taught me how to, when I was ready, get my nails done, how to put on makeup. I started asking questions. I wanted what these women had because of the love that they had for me and because they weren't trying to push their agenda on me. And so when it was ready for me, when I was ready to get out of my little butchy clothes, I asked them if they would take me shopping and that's what they did. And ever since then till today, which is over 20 years that I've been free, that was a process. But let me say this. A lot of people think that when you come out of homosexuality, you can have one foot in and one foot out. The reason why I have no desire today to go back into that life and I'm not trying to be mean. It repulses me to even think that I lived that life. I have no desire because when I walked away, I walked away. I didn't look back. I always look forward. I don't have a lot of gay friends. I didn't have any. I only had the heterosexual community to lean on and to help me. I let go of all my friends until this day. I still don't have a lot of ex-gay friends, even though I know a lot of ex-gay 
ministries. Most of my, for a matter of fact, all my friends are all heterosexual couples who never experienced the life of homosexuality. So we're, we're almost out of time, but I did want to ask you if you could answer two questions. And, and one, is, I'll try. one is, what would you like to say to the person out there who is struggling? They're, maybe they got one foot in, one foot out, or they've got, you know, both feet in and they're just struggling with, you know, what would it look like? Maybe there's fear in them to, to come out or to work towards, uh, you know, living God's design. So that's one question is to the person who's out there struggling. But the other question I have is, what would you say to the person out there that just has the typical fear or ignorance around the issue of the whole LBGTQ lifestyle and all of that, but yet they still want to say, I would, know, I would like to know what I need to know to help the person who, or even how to approach or, or love my neighbor who is a lesbian or a homosexual. Does that make sense? So one, one is the, what would you say to the person who's struggling themselves? And then what would you say to the person who doesn't really know how to connect well with the person who is in that lifestyle and yet it's their neighbor or their coworker or, you know, somebody in their life uh, sphere? Yeah. So through the unconditional love uh, of my church and those that have been around me, they were able to point me to a true revelation of who Jesus is and the love that he has for me. You see, I know what it's like to experience the roughness of life, getting up sometime and getting knocked back down. I live in an abusive home with a stern mother and a stepfather that was drunk that abused my mother. We can never tell what someone has been through or what they are going through or what has happened in their private lives. But many times they're going through a lot, which is no fault of theirs. What I went through was no fault of mine. You might see people acting out, it's no fault of theirs. That is why it is important that the church needs to try to understand the reason. And the church is not a stained glass, it's not a steeple, we are the church for their behavior and never make wrong assumptions or condemn them. Many people may not struggle with homosexuality, you know, and they have an emptiness and a void and they're not satisfied, but the answer is Jesus. There are many people that want to be able to help those that are struggling with homosexuality. We need to get out of our head. A lot of times people call me and say, I have a gay person here. I know a gay person there. Can I go up and talk with them? No, get to know them, have a relationship. We always want to change somebody without having a relationship when we need to pull the speck out of our own eye before we start judging somebody else. Because I'm sure if I've zoomed in on their life, I'm sure I'm going to see something that I'm not you know, happy with or some type of sin. But a lot of times, get to know the person. It's okay to go out to lunch with them. I don't believe bringing that into my home. This is my space. I like to keep it safe and at peace. But it's okay to have a conversation with. If they're struggling with something and they confide in you, maybe just minister to them. Just say, you know what? I've been through that. I know other people have been through that. Let's just pray with them and let them know how much we love them. Mm-hmm. So, Janet, where can people get more information about your ministry and resources to, to help them in all of these areas? Yeah, I have a book that we wrote a few years ago. My good friend, Dr. Michael Brown, did the forward. It's called God and Sexuality, Truth and Relevance Without Compromise. They can go to my website. We wrote that book for families that are looking for answers that have a loved one. So go to www.JanetBoingsBoingsMinistries.com. Awesome. And we'll make sure that that gets put in the show notes and that people know where to get that information. But Janet, 
Thank you for being open and honest about your story and also responding to God's call to help other people in this space of ministry. So we appreciate you being with us today. Jonathan, thanks for having me. Yeah. And listeners, of course, we're always glad that you're with us. Please reach out to us if you want help on your journey. Uh, We'd love to help walk you along to whatever God's next step is for you. And we look forward to seeing you back here again next time on the Pure Sex Radio broadcast. Take care. Pure Sex Radio is paid for by Be Broken Ministries. Visit us online at puresexradio.com.